Well, good morning. It's great to see everybody this morning. If you would, take your Bibles out and turn with me to John chapter 19. John chapter 19 is where we'll be today, and so I want you to take your Bibles out and go ahead and turn there. We'll read it together in just a minute, but before we read it, I want to ask you a question, and the question's a real simple one. Have you ever made a promise that cost you something? That's the question for today. Have you ever made a promise that cost you something? Maybe the better way to ask that question is, have you ever made a promise that didn't cost you something? It seems like every promise we make tends to cost us something. And so I just want you to think about that. Have you ever made a promise that cost you something? And maybe as you think about those promises that cost you something, you could ask another question. You could ask about those promises that you've made that cost you something. And at some point you decided that the price was just too high and you decided that that's a promise that you're just not going to keep. Have you ever made a promise that cost you something? Has the price ever been so high that you decided that that was a promise you just couldn't keep? I can give you an example of some promises that cost us something. My kids play ball. My sons play baseball. My daughter plays softball. And at the beginning of each season, our family makes this promise. And that promise absolutely cost us something. Today, I'm a little darker than I was on Friday because we spent the weekend on a ball field at a tournament. It, it took some time. It cost us some time to be a part of that cost us some money to be a part of that. We have to pay the league fees and buy the uniforms and get the equipment. And it seems like every tournament, you've got $5 going in and $5 for some, some, uh, you know, some drinks and something to eat and some things like that. It costs you something to make those promises. But we make those promises because we believe it's worth it, right? Our kids get to play. They get to learn a skill. They get to have some fun together. Uh, hopefully someday they could be good enough to maybe earn a scholarship. You know, everybody has that hope out there. And so as a family, we've made this promise, and it's cost us a little bit of time and a little bit of money, and it's given us, in return, a whole lot of fun. And we, we've all had those kinds of promises that cost us something. And you know what? Sometimes a promise doesn't just cost you something. Sometimes a promise changes the direction of your life. Sometimes a promise changes the direction of your life. There was a promise that, uh, that I made uh, a little over 21 years ago, and it was a promise that I made to my wife. We stood before one another, and, and we made these vows before God and before our friends, and, and she promised to love and obey, right? And I promised that I'd be there in sickness and in health. Okay, maybe the obey part was left out of ours. I'm not positive about that. I just remember what my dad said about marriage. He said, man is not complete until he's married, and then he's finished. That's the way my dad always said it. He always said it just like that. He also would follow that up. He would also say, just remember once you're married that if mama ain't happy, ain't nobody happy. And if daddy ain't happy, ain't nobody cares. Yeah, that's the way my dad approached marriage. And so um, I've, I've learned from the best, right, about what that means to make that promise. But that's a promise that has changed the direction and the course of my life. It's done the same thing for Londa. Had we not gotten married 20, over 21 years ago, we wouldn't have these four beautiful kids now. We wouldn't have this incredible life that we have now. It's been an awesome thing to be able to make this promise and to keep it. Now, if you're married... And maybe if you're not married currently because you've been married before, you know that the, the, the promise of marriage, <laughs> that can be a hard promise to keep, can't it? Have you ever made a promise that cost you something? Sometimes that promise of marriage, some people will look at that and go, man, it just costs so much. I don't know if I can afford it anymore. And, and so we break that promise? Have you ever made a promise that cost you something? Have you ever made a promise you couldn't keep? Have you ever made the kind of promise that you look back and you think, man, it's this promise. It's just costing me too much. 
Well, we're in the middle of a series right now that we've called This Is Us, and you can see the things on the, on the stage that kind of reinforce that. Over the next several weeks, uh, we're looking at four different characters. Last week, we looked at Pilate. Uh, Pilate was the skeptic. You can see his, his uh, banner right over here. He was the skeptic. And what we discovered is that many of us, actually I think all of us, approach the cross oftentimes as skeptics. Everyone we talk about during this series, This Is Us, Everyone had this interaction with Jesus at the cross. And so as we talk about these different characters, we're going to see, we're going to find ourselves in them. See, everything changed with the promise of the cross. And it happened over 2,000 years ago, but even today we still live in a cruciform-shaped culture. What does that mean? Well, it means that our views of humility and our views of leadership and our views of, of, of family and our views of, of children and our views on all of these different things are different. Now, even if you don't know or believe the history that surrounds the cross, you may not know this, but the culture that you live in has been so changed by the death of one man on a cross that we now live in a culture that's been influenced by that cruciform shape, by that death of that one man on the cross. And even if you come into this like the skeptic, like Pilate did, you have to respond to that claim of Jesus. A response is demanded. And we learned last week that what we want to do with skeptics is we want to recognize that the authentic life of Jesus and his followers, they, it speaks to a skeptic. And we want skeptics, if you're a skeptic today, we want you to wrestle with your questions. I love the fact that you have questions. And I love the fact that if you're a skeptic here today, you may have come last week and thought, you know, I'm going to consider that some more. And so now you've come back this week. And I'm so thankful because what a great place to have that conversation you know, I'm not sure what I believe about Jesus. I'm not sure about this organized religion thing. I'm not sure where the Bible stands in my view or in my life, but, but I want to I learn more. I want to know more. And I just want to say thanks for bringing your skepticism here because this is a great place for you to ask those questions and to have those kinds of conversations. And so I'm grateful that you've come to this place, and I hope that you'll ask those questions, and I hope that you'll have those conversations because I believe here you'll find answers. And so we want you to wrestle. I want to wrestle with those deeper questions of the faith and those things that would cause me to be a skeptic. And we also learn that every skeptic has to, has to confront this claim of Jesus, that Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. You know, that's a claim that Jesus made that we have to respond to, but it's also a promise that God makes to us. It's this promise that he intends to keep, that Jesus is the way when we need direction, that he's the truth when we're surrounded by deception, and that he's the life when our lives seem hopeless and empty. That's a, a claim that we have to respond to as skeptics. And so last week we saw Pilate, and maybe you see yourself in that role of skeptic. Maybe you see yourself as Pilate. And today we're going to look at John. John is the one who was faithful, and we're going to talk a little bit more about John here in just a minute. You're going to see part of his story in John chapter 19, but we're going to see the power of a promise kept. We're going to see what happens when someone makes a serious promise and then goes about being serious about fulfilling that promise. And it's a promise that cost him something. It's a promise that at times he may have looked at, not just John, but Jesus made these promises and looked at and gone, I don't know if I can afford this. I don't know if I can afford this. But, but John fulfilled these promises. And more than that, Jesus fulfilled these promises. And he did them in a way that still affects you and me today. And so today, maybe you'll see yourself in John. Maybe you've moved through that stage of being someone who is skeptical. And today, maybe you're one of the faithful. Maybe there's a promise today that you're thinking, okay, I've kept this promise all my life, but you're thinking about, well, I don't know if I can afford to keep this promise anymore. Well, I hope that today you realize that 
our promises are worth keeping. And that there are some promises that are worth fighting for. And there are some promises that are absolutely worth dying for. So if you would, let's look at John chapter 19. If you would stand with me in honor of the reading of God's word. We're going to begin in verse 16 of John chapter 19. John chapter 19, beginning in verse 16. Then Pilate delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. We're just leaving where we, we're just starting where we left off last week. John chapter 19, verse 16. Then Pilate delivered Jesus to them to be crucified. Then they took Jesus and led him away. And he, bearing his cross, went out to a place called the place of the skull, which is called in Hebrew Golgotha where they crucified him and two others with him, one on either side and Jesus in the center. Now Pilate wrote a title and put it on the cross, and the writing was Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Then many of the Jews read this title, for the place where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Hebrew, Greek, and Latin. Do you think Pilate wanted the people to get the message? Remember last week, Pilate four different times, finds no fault with Jesus. And so when he, puts the, when he puts the accusation over Jesus' head on the cross at Calvary, the accusation is simply the truth. This is Jesus, King of the Jews. And it offended, it offended the Jews. He put it in three different languages so that everybody could be sure to read the truth about who this man was. I find no fault in him, Pilate would say, still, though Pilate was skeptical. Verse 21 Therefore, the chief priest of the Jews said to Pilate, Do not write the king of the Jews, but write, He said, I am the king of the Jews. Pilate answered, what I, what I have written, I have written. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, took his garments and made four parts to each a soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, Let us not tear it, but cast lots for it. Whose it shall be? That the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, They divided my garments among them, and for my clothing they cast lots. Therefore the soldiers did these things. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved, that would be the apostle John, standing by, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. And from that hour, the disciple, that disciple took her into his own home. After this, Jesus, knowing that all things were now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, said, I thirst. Now a vessel full of sour wine was sitting there, and they filled a sponge with sour wine, put it on hyssop, and put it to his mouth. So when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, it is finished. And bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks so much. You can be seated. Have you ever made a promise that cost you something? You know, today we're going to see several things about what it means to be faithful. What it means to be faithful to the promises that we make and the promises that we keep. But before we can really talk about faithfulness, we really need to define what it is. Faithfulness at its heart is actions consistent with beliefs. Faithfulness is our actions consistent with our beliefs. Vance Havner used to say that everything we, say, everything we do is what we believe. Everything else is just so much religious talk. Anything we do is what we really believe. Everything else is just so much religious talk. Said another way, faithfulness at its core, faithfulness is making your promises and keeping your promises. That's faithfulness at its core. Making your promises and keeping your promises. Now that's not 
that's not a very deep definition, is it? That doesn't sound like a terribly difficult thing to do, but if we remember that every promise that we make costs us something, and sometimes we make promises rashly, then it makes it easy for us to look around and see the number of people in our lives who have broken their promises to us, and the number of people whose promises that we've made, we've made promises to them, and we've broken those promises. And so this idea that faithfulness is actions consistent with beliefs, it's the promises we make and the promises we keep. It's a lot easier to say it than it is to do it, isn't it? You see, because without our actions, without our actions, all that we have are empty words. Your family needs more than your good intentions. Your wife, your husband, your kids, they need more than your good intentions. They need your godly actions. Your friends need more than wishful thinking. They need your time. They need your presence in their life. They need your words in their life. They need you to speak wisdom to them. I, I have friends in my life that, that tell me when I'm being stupid, when I'm about to walk off the edge of a cliff. They stop me and they tell me, they, they, they love me enough, they care for me enough, and we have the kind of friendship that they can look at me and say, stop being stupid. You need friends in your life that are like that. And sometimes you need to be that kind of friend who would stop someone before they walk off a cliff. They need more than your wishful thinking. Friends need your, your presence in, in their lives. Your community, this community of believers, this church, and then the, the larger community of the Owasso that you live in, or maybe you're from Collinsville or Claremore or Talala or Tulsa or wherever it is that you're from, your community needs your, they, they need more than your words. They need more than your words. They need your actions. They need you to use who you are and what you have for the benefit of others. You know, it seems like talking about politics is our national pastime. It is the ultimate in reality television. And when I watch, whether it's CNN or Fox or NPR or MSNBC, whatever it is, it seems like nobody has all the facts, but everybody has all the answers, right? I may not have all the facts, but I do have all the answers. And sometimes I shout at my TV because I am that guy who has all the answers, even though I may not have all the facts. What our nation needs is a lot less talk, right? And a lot more action. We need to live up to the words that we say because faithfulness is our actions and our beliefs consistent. Are they t consistent and are they together? Now, when I think about our actions and our, and our beliefs being consistent, the promises we make and the promises we keep, it seems like that there's two pieces to faithfulness. And one of those pieces of faithfulness is the being side of faithfulness. That's our character. And the other side of faithfulness is becoming who are we becoming as we make and as we keep these promises? There's no one who, who is the, the, a better example of being faithful than Jesus himself. Jesus is the ultimate model. He's the perfect model of faithfulness. Take a look at uh, John chapter 19 again. John chapter 19 and verse 23, look at this. Then the soldiers, when they had crucified Jesus, they took his garments and made four parts to each soldier apart, and also the tunic. Now the tunic was without seam, woven from the top in one piece. They said, therefore, among themselves, let us not tear it, but cast lots for it, whose it shall be. Now, that seems pretty mundane and really practical, and just like a, why would anybody put that kind of historic detail into a narrative like this? Well, you find that out in the next phrase, that the scripture might be fulfilled, which says, they divided my garments among them, and for my clothing, they cast lots. Therefore, the soldiers did these things. 
When those soldiers on the day that Christ was crucified, when they came, they just came to work. It was just another day. My dad would say it's just another day at the insane asylum. They just showed up to work that day. And they were the ones who would, they would whip and they would beat these criminals that, were on, that, that they would then ultimately crucify on the cross. And they were just going through the motions of what they did every time they crucified someone. Jesus had some stuff that was valuable. And so they divided it among themselves because they knew Jesus wasn't going to be using it anymore. And little did they know that as they did that, they fulfilled a prophecy that had been spoken in the Old Testament hundreds of years before Christ was crucified. When you read a prophecy in the Old Testament, one way to view that prophecy is as a promise. There are over 350 prophecies about who the Messiah would be in the Old Testament. And do you know how many of those prophecies Jesus fulfilled? Every last one of them. Every promise that Jesus made, more specifically, every promise that God made, Jesus kept. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 20 says that in Jesus, all the promises of God have their yes. And this is one more moment where Jesus made and fulfilled not simply a prophecy, he fulfilled a promise. Now, if you doubt that Jesus really is the Messiah, if you wonder if he really is who he says he was and that he really could do the things he said he could do, could he really die for my sin and yours? There are over 350 prophecies and promises about who the Messiah would be in the Old Testament. Mathematicians have said that for one person to accurately fit even eight of those prophecies, just eight of those prophecies, the mathematical probability is somewhere between one and 100 quadrillion. The possibility that someone would actually fit eight of those, one and 100 quadrillion. That's almost how much you make in a month, right? <laughs> almost, right? No, one and, for one person to fulfill just eight of those prophecies, for a person to fulfill 48 of those prophecies, the number is one, and it's the number 10 to the 157th power. One and a 10 with 157 zeros after it. Jesus didn't just make a promise. He made over 350 of them. And he kept every single one. Jesus is the ultimate example of what it means to be, to have a character of faithfulness, to be the person who makes the promise, even though it's going to cost you something, and to fulfill the promise, no matter what that price might be. All 350, more than he, he met every one of those. And so when we see what faithfulness is, that it's our actions consistent with our beliefs, we see that Jesus is the ultimate example of making and keeping his promises. He really is the Messiah. We also see another example of what it means to make and to keep your promises, and we see that in John. John isn't, isn't, the, isn't the one who exhibits the, the character of faithfulness as much as he exhibits someone who is becoming faithful. He's learning to become someone who is faithful. Now, each of us have made promises that we haven't kept, but I can tell you with certainty that, that God is not finished with us yet. And so there's still time, there's still moments, not to just make promises, but to keep promises. Uh, Philippians chapter 1, verse 6, it says, And being confident of this very thing, that he who began a good work in you, he, that would be Jesus, will be faithful to complete that work in you until the coming of Christ. So in this moment, right now, think about the promises that you've made. You aren't necessarily faithful in this moment, and there's a tension that you feel because you're considering breaking a promise, or maybe you've just broken 
a promise. And you broke it for all, all, you've got all kinds of great reasons for why you broke that promise. It's just too hard. It just costs me too much. I can't believe I made that. I shouldn't have made that promise in the first place. You've made all kinds of promises, and now you're going through that process of evaluating, should I keep that promise? You're thinking about stepping out on your spouse. You're thinking about giving up your family. You're thinking about doing Well, it may not be illegal, but it may be immoral, that thing in your career that would set you ahead and set you apart of everyone else. And it's not really illegal, but it's it's immoral. And it's definitely you're thinking about crossing that line just so that you can get ahead and and you're feeling this tension. And some of us might call that tension grief, and some of us might call that tension guilt. Some of us might call that tension shame. Can I tell you what that tension really is? It's the tension that comes when the Holy Spirit whispers into your ears and whispers into your heart and says, you should keep your promise. You should keep it. I'll tell you why later, but you should keep it. Yeah, I know I know it's going to cost you something, and I know keeping your promise, it might hurt. Keeping your promise may mean you have to lose that argument, but if you lose that argument, you might win your son. It, losing that argument and keeping your promise paying for that thing you promised to pay for, doing that thing that you promised to do, keeping that promise, it it may mean that you lose your pride, but it means you get to keep your family. It may mean you, you lose the promotion, but it means you get to keep your name and your integrity. You see, Jesus was the perfect model of faithfulness. John was the, was the model of faithfulness of becoming. That Jesus, that God wasn't finished with him. Jesus, uh, John was in the garden on that day when, uh, when, when Jesus was praying. G- John was one of the three that, that Jesus had taken a little bit further into the garden with him and said, John, pray with me. And every time, John was just like all the other disciples. He fell asleep. Okay, Jesus, I'll pray with you. Promise, I'll do that. No, no worries. <laughs> and then John fell asleep. And then when the Roman centurions came, John, just like all the other disciples, he fled. He ran away in fear and in terror for his life. I know I'm going to be with you, Jesus. I'm going to be with you until the guys, until the guys with swords show up. And then he ran away. Actually, in one version of the, of the scriptures, it says that one of the disciples, the disciple Jesus loved, ran away so fast that he left his clothes behind. <laughs> I've never run so fast that I ran away naked. Um, isn't that a fun church word? Just say that with me. Naked. Yeah, see, that's a, you're, you're like, I can't say that word in church. I made a promise. Yeah, yeah, you, I'm just kidding. But, uh, but it said that John ran so fast. So there's this moment when John wasn't faithful to Jesus. John, who Jesus took up on the Mount of Transfiguration, he took all the disciples to the bottom of the hill, and then he takes three disciples with him so that they could go up the side of this mountain, and Jesus could have this very intimate conversation with them, showing them exactly who he was, that he really was God, he really is Messiah. John saw that. John was there when Jesus performed all these miracles, when Jesus healed the sick, and when he cast out demons, and when he raised the dead. When Jesus served a meal of fish and bread to 5,000 people, and he did it out of just a handful of fish and a handful of bread. When, When Jesus did that, John ate from all of those leftover baskets. He experienced all of that, and still, in this moment, when his faith is challenged, John fails, and he runs. Why? Well, because John wasn't faithful yet. Because John wasn't perfect yet. Because John wasn't finished yet. God wasn't finished with him yet. And you know what? For each of us today, for each you and I, 
in the middle of all of this, as I bring up these promises we've made and promises we've kept or promises we've given up on, I guarantee you that there's something that you're thinking of right now and you're thinking to yourself, I'm a complete failure. I could never do it. I could never go back. Things will never, ever be the same. And that may be true. Things may never be the same. But that tension you're feeling, the guilt and the shame, the embarrassment, the humiliation, can I tell you that that's not the Holy Spirit trying to punish you. That's the Holy Spirit trying to complete you. He wants to speak truth into your heart. He wants to be that friend that keeps you from walking off a cliff. And verse 6 of Philippians chapter 1 says, He, Jesus, who began a good work in you, he will be faithful to complete it until the day of Christ. And so today, if you're feeling that pressure, if you're feeling that tension, if you're feeling the weight of a promise that you failed to keep, keep listening because God's not finished with you yet. Faithfulness is our actions consistent with our belief. But faithfulness is practiced, proven, and perfected in our trials. I mean, isn't it easy to keep a promise, you know, when it's easy to keep a promise? <laughs> isn't it easy to keep a promise when keeping that promise benefits you? I mean, that's the easy time. It's hard to keep a promise when it feels like you're going to lose. It's hard to keep a promise when it feels like it's going to cost you something. It's hard to keep a promise when it feels like you lose the argument. Doesn't it? Well, I mean, wouldn't marriage be easy if you two just agreed all the time? If you just always agreed on what the temperature in the room should be and whether or not the toilet seats should be up or down and how you should raise your kids and what you should spend money on and where you should save money and how you should invest, wouldn't marriage be easy? I had a pastor friend who used to say, hey, in marriage, if, the, if two of you agree all of the time, then one of you just isn't necessary. <laughs> you just be married all by yourself, right? Um, and, and that's not what marriage is. Marriage is this glorious union of two very different ideas. And it's this promise that we make, this covenant that we make before God and for our friends that for better and for worse, when we have things and when we don't have things, when you're cute and when you're not, when you're old and when you're young, when you're skinny and when you're not so skinny. <laughs> Okay, I know now I'm meddling, right? Yeah, I didn't mean to do that. But you see how that promise is, it's easy to keep when things are going your way. But, but faithfulness, the true test of faithfulness is, well, it's practiced, proven, and, and perfected in, in trials. Being a parent is really easy when your children do everything you tell them to do, right? <laughs> Being on staff anywhere is easy when the environment is sweet and the money is good and the job is easy, Right? But that's not the true test of faithfulness. The true test of faithfulness is in the trial. It's in the difficulty. It's when the fire comes. It's in the middle of that heated argument where you're really tempted to just walk away and you look at your spouse and you go, I don't care how mad you are at me. I don't care how mad I am at you. I'll repent. I'll forgive. And I'll give grace. Because I choose you above everyone else. And I made a promise, and I'm going to be stubborn about keeping that promise. Why? Well, because I made that promise before God, and I made that promise to you, and faithfulness is worth it. Why? Well, because there's the Holy Spirit again, working inside that tension, reminding you of, hey, give me a minute. I'm still working on you. I'm still working on your spouse. I'm still working on your kids and on your boss and on your coworker. I'm still working on 
all of those people. So give me time to work because what I'm doing in you and through you right now is part of that work in you and in them. In the middle of the fire, in the middle of the storm, that's where the test of faithfulness comes. Turn to Philippians chapter 2 with me for just a moment. Again, I said Jesus is the perfect model. If John is the practical model, Jesus is the perfect model of what it means to be faithful, of what it means to make a promise and keep it, even when it's hard. During this Lent season, we've been trying to memorize together Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. I want to show you something in Philippians chapter 2 today, beginning in verse 5. Listen to the promise that Jesus made, and listen to the price that he paid in order to keep the promise. Let this mind be in you, which also was in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. But he made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Therefore, God also has highly exalted him and given him the name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow of those in heaven and of those on earth and of those under the earth, and that every tongue should confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Did you see what the promise of Christ cost him? Jesus gave up his authority as God. Verse, verse 6, who, being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God. In order to keep his promise, he gave up his authority to be God. He gave up his rights as a man. Verse 7, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant. He became a bondservant to God. He became a servant to you and to me. Why? To keep his promise. What was his promise? That we could be forgiven. That we could have new life. That this life that we have could be complete. And our relationship with God could be whole. And our relationship with people could be healthy. He made these promises. And in order to secure these promises, first he gave up his authority to be God. And then he gave up his rights as a man to become a bondservant. Again in verse 7, but made himself of no reputation. He gave up his reputation. He had this reputation for being this incredible loving healer and teacher and protector and provider. The Messiah was supposed to be this great military leader and he gave up all of that reputation. Why? To keep his promise to you and to me. Verse 8, and being found in appearance as man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death. He gave up his reputation to be accused of crimes he didn't commit. He gave up his reputation to be accused and to suffer the penalty and the punishment for all of the things that you did wrong <laughs> and for all of the things that I did wrong, for all the sin that you and I have committed throughout all of history, throughout all of time, in this one singular, simple, not simple, terribly beautiful and complicated act. Jesus looks to you and to me and he says, I'm going to take all your sin into myself. I'm going to take the punishment and the penalty for all the things you've done wrong, for all the promises you've broken, for all the promises you failed to keep, for all the times you've said you would do the right thing and done something else instead. Jesus gave up his authority as God. He gave up his rights as a man. He gave up his reputation to be accused and to take the penalty and punishment for the crimes you and I committed. And ultimately, at the cross, he gave up his life. Remember John chapter 19? He bowed his head and he said, it is finished. What is finished? He kept his promise. 
He was faithful to keep the promise that he made to you and to me. That faithful promise that if we will confess our sins, that he'll be faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That promise that he is the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to the Father except through him. He kept his promises. And now because he's kept his promise to us, we can keep our promises to one another. We can keep our promise to him. That's the last thing I want you to see today, that faithfulness is our actions consistent with our beliefs. Faithfulness is practiced and it's proven and it's perfected in our trials. But here's the last piece, and this is the piece that I believe the Holy Spirit continuously whispers into our hearts and into our lives. Faithfulness gives you a front row seat to all the promises of God. Faithfulness gives you and me a front row seat to all the promises of God. Are you thinking about ditching your family? Hold on, because faithfulness gives you a front row seat to all the promises of God. Are you thinking about drastically altering your your life circumstances with your job? Pray through that. See what the Holy Spirit wants you to do. Ask God to tell you which direction he really wants you to go, because you might be doing the right thing if you're following Christ in that, but if you're following yourself in that, if you're just ready to bail because you don't want to keep that promise, hold on. Because faithfulness gives you a front row seat to all the promises of God. Turn back to John chapter 19 and let's look at what happened with John. Verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus. John chapter 19 verse 25. Now there stood by the cross of Jesus his mother and his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus therefore saw his mother and the disciple who he loved standing by, he said to his mother, woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, behold your mother. And from that hour, that disciple took her to, be, to, to his own home. Here's John standing during the crucifixion at the foot of the cross. Faithfulness gives you a front row seat to all the promises of God. Remember Peter? Peter proudly and publicly on the night before the crucifixion, he says, I'll never deny you, Jesus. I'll stand with you the whole time. He swung a sword uh, in, in defense of who Jesus was very publicly and proudly. Peter says all those things and then just a few hours later, very publicly and just as proudly, denies that he even knew who Jesus was. Now later, Jesus restores Peter. That so influenced Peter, that moment, that denial, and maybe this is you, that denial of his promise, the promise that Peter made, it so broke Peter, that pressure, that tension, that grief, that guilt, that shame that he felt, it so broke Peter that he was considering quitting ministry altogether. Yet Jesus comes to him and very gently restores him. Peter, do you love me? Hey, Peter, do you love me? Feed my sheep. Yeah, I love you. Yeah, Jesus, I love you. Okay, you're forgiven. There's not a promise you've broken today that can't be forgiven. There's not a wound you've inflicted that can't be healed. There's not a wound you've received that God can't restore. But John was different than Peter. John ran on the night in the garden, but at the foot of the cross, John stood there and he had a front row seat to all the promises of God. When we look at this book, we see four Gospels. We see the Gospel of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. That's right. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are the, are the four Gospels. We call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic Gospels. The reason we call them the synoptic Gospels is they're relatively the same. They, they tell essentially the same chronological story about what happened in the life of Christ. But when you get to the Gospel of John, it's very different. 
It tells some of the same stories. It reveals some of the same miracles, but it's like his intent. John's intent is very different from Matthew, Mark, and Luke. Where, John, uh, where Matthew, Mark, and Luke want to show you what happened, John is very concerned with who Jesus is. It's like John, it's like Matthew, Mark, and Luke are trying to tell you this is the story of how it happened, but John is trying to introduce you to an old friend. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. I don't think it's any mistake that John is the apostle, apart from Paul, who wrote more books of the, of the New Testament than anyone else. He wrote the Gospel of John. He wrote 1st, 2nd, and 3rd John. He wrote the Revelation. So when it came time for John to write, we see this very unique, very intimate perspective on who Jesus is. I don't think it's any mistake that it's John who tells us that, we'll know, that, that they'll know we're Christians by our love. I don't think it's any coincidence that John is the one who wrote the book of Revelation. Remember I said that faithfulness gives you a front row seat to all the promises of God? At the end of time, there was John seeing Christ in all of his glory, and seeing it in such a way that he could write it down to reveal it to you and me in the book of Revelation. I don't think it's any coincidence that it's Jesus who goes to John and says, John, I want to talk to you about something. Let me, let me talk to you about my mom. Now think about the size of this. Jesus is on the cross. He's bearing literally the weight of the world on his shoulders. He is in the process He's in the process of dying for you and me. He has nails in his hands and his feet. He's been stabbed in the side. He's got a crown of thorns on his head. He's been beaten with a whip and all of that for your sin and for mine because he's got this promise to keep right. He's thinking about all of humanity. Yet in this moment, this grand moment, he stops thinking about all of humanity for just a minute. And he focuses not on just fulfilling his promise as the son of God, but fulfilling his promise as a son to Mary. Jesus is the oldest son of Mary and Joseph. And Joseph has, has died. Mary's a widow. It's Jesus' responsibility to take care of his mom. And we see Jesus on this cross, this huge, magnificent moment where he's securing salvation for everyone throughout all history. He's securing salvation for you and for me. And yet, he takes the time to remember this very intimate moment where he looks to his mom to say, Mom, I'm going to keep this promise too. I'm going to take care of you in this moment. Here's your son. John, take care of mom. Mom, this is the one who'll take care of you. John, here he is. Faithfulness gives you a front row seat to all the promises of God. I don't think it's any coincidence that John is the one who wrote 1 John 1, 9. If we confess our sins, then Jesus is faithful and he's just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. In that moment on the cross, he was saving all of humanity. <laughs> but he was thinking of me. In that moment on the cross, he saved all of humanity. He paid the penalty. He paid the price for every sin. And he was thinking of you. If we confess our sins, He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because faithfulness, it gave you and me a front row seat.
to all the promises of God. Can we bow our heads and close our eyes for just a moment? We're going to have a moment where we'll sing together. And as we sing, some of you need to pray and some of you need to listen. But this is a moment to respond to what God has called us to do. I don't know what promises you've made or kept. I don't know whether or not you've fulfilled those promises or whether you've broken them, but I can assure you of this one thing. Jesus Christ has kept every promise he's ever made to you. And while he was on the cross, he was fulfilling a promise to you. He was fulfilling a promise to heal the wrongs you have done and the wrongs that have been done to you. He's made, he was fulfilling that promise that would relieve that tension that you feel because of the grief and the, and the, and the guilt and the shame that you feel because of the sins that you've committed. And in this moment today, you can say, I believe. You can say, Father, I trust. You can ask for his forgiveness and you can receive his grace and it's that grace that doesn't just start the work in you, it's the, way, it's the grace that completes and finishes the work through you. Will you be faithful? Will you hold on? And will you let Jesus do what only he can do inside your heart and inside your life? After I pray, I'm going to say amen. And when I say amen, if you need to place your faith in Jesus, if you need to know what it means to ask him for forgiveness of sin, there'll be men down front. You can take one of their hands and just say, I need Jesus today. And they'll be glad to talk with you more about that. If you need to join the church, you can come let someone know you'd like to join the church. But today, what promise do you need to keep? What promise do you need to give into his hands?